0: I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me tonight. A couple of short springtime pieces this evening. The first is by Jerome K. Jerome. He was born in the spring of 1859, the youngest of four children of a middle-class family. The family's fortunes took ruinous turns with his father's business speculations, and Jerome grew up in abject poverty in London's Limehouse district. His father died when Jerome was twelve, he lost his mother when he was sixteen. His sister Blandina had instilled in him a fascination with the theatre. He made his professional debut as an actor at the age of eighteen under the name of Harold Crichton, touring the country with a succession of third-rate outfits. He said, "'I have played every part in Hamlet except Ophelia.' Three years of hard labor on the road left him demoralized and disillusioned. By the time he was in his mid-twenties, he was at the bottom of the social heap, penniless and living in flophouses. He drifted into hack journalism, spending all his spare time writing short stories, essays and satires, and getting rejected. Next, he tried schoolmastering, then worked in turn for an illiterate North London builder, As a buyer and packer for some commission agents, and ended up as a solicitor's clerk with vague thoughts of training for the law. Nothing worked out. And then he had the idea of writing of his experiences as an actor. The result was On the Stage and Off, the brief career of a would be actor. It was published in a new magazine, The Play. In 1885, it was published in book form. It remains one of the most detailed and absorbing portraits of late Victorian theatre life. It is also very funny. A collection of humorous essays followed, The Idle Thoughts of an Idle Fellow, 1886. Two years later, he married Georgina Elizabeth Henrietta Stanley Maris, known by her pet name of Etty. They were both 29 years old. The honeymoon was spent on the Thames, and Jerome began writing Three Men in a Boat, on his return. The book appeared in 1889 and made him rich and famous. In one leap he was made for life, part of the literary establishment, with a loosely knit circle of friends that included J.M. Berry, Ryder Haggard, H.G. Wells, Conan Doyle, Thomas Hardy, and Rudyard Kipling. Jerome was still a struggling unknown when he confided to his friend George Wingrave that he had four ambitions in life— to edit a successful journal, to write a successful play, to write a successful book, to become a member of Parliament. He achieved every one but the last, and a whole lot more. Three Men in a Boat has never gone out of print, and is one of the most beloved comic masterpieces of English literature. Tonight, at the suggestion of my angler friend and lover of tall tales, Richard, an episode From Chapter 17. I am not a good fisherman myself. I devoted a considerable amount of attention to the subject at one time, and was getting on, as I thought, fairly well. But the old hands told me that I should never be any real good at it, and advised me to give it up. They said that I was an extremely neat thrower, and that I seemed to have plenty of gumption for the thing, and quite enough constitutional laziness but they were sure I should never make anything of a fisherman. I had not got sufficient imagination. They said that as a poet, or a shilling shocker, or a reporter, or anything of that kind, I might be satisfactory, but that to gain any position as a Thames angler would require more play of fancy, more power of invention than I appeared to possess.' Some people are under the impression that all that is required to make a good fisherman is the ability to tell lies easily and without blushing. But this is a mistake. Mere bald fabrication is useless. The various Tyro can manage that. It is, in the circumstantial detail, the embellishing touches of probability, the general air of scrupulous, almost of pedantic veracity, that the experienced angler is seen." "'Anybody can come in and say, "'Oh, I caught fifteen dozen perch yesterday evening, "'or, last Monday I landed a gudgeon weighing eighteen pounds "'and measuring three feet from the tip to the tail. "'There is no art, no skill required for that sort of thing. "'It shows pluck, but that is all. "'No, your accomplished angler would scorn to tell a lie that way. "'His method is a study in itself.' He comes in quietly, with his hat on, appropriates the most comfortable chair, lights his pipe, and commences to puff in silence. He lets the youngsters brag away for a while, and then, during a momentary lull, he removes the pipe from his mouth and remarks, as he knocks the ashes out against the bars, "'Well, I had a haul on Tuesday evening that it's not much good my telling anybody about.' "'Oh, why's that?' they asked. "'Because I don't expect anybody would believe me if I did,' replies the old fellow calmly, and without even a tinge of bitterness in his tone, as he refills his pipe and requests the landlord to bring him three of scotch cold. There is a pause after this, nobody feeling sufficiently sure of himself to contradict the old gentleman, so he has to go on by himself without any encouragement. Now he continues thoughtfully, I shouldn't believe it myself if anybody told it to me, but it's a fact for all that. I had been sitting there all the afternoon and had caught literally nothing, except a few dozen days in a score of jack, and I was just about giving it up as a bad job when I suddenly felt a rather smart pull at the line. I thought it was another little one, and I went to jerk it up. Hang me if I could move the rod. It took me half an hour half an hour, sir, to land that fish, and every moment I thought the line was going to snap. I reached him at last, and what do you think it was? A sturgeon, a forty-pound sturgeon, taken on a line, sir. Yes, you may well look surprised. I'll have another three of Scotch, landlord, please. And then he goes on to tell of the astonishment of everybody who saw it, and what his wife said when he got home and of what Joe Buggles thought about it. I asked the landlord in an inn up the river if it did not injure him sometimes, listening to the tales of the fishermen about there told him, and he said, "'Oh, no, not now, sir. It did used to knock me over a bit at first, but lo, love you. Me and the missus, we listens to em all day now. It's what you're used to, you know. It's what you're used to.' I knew a young man once, he was a most conscientious fellow, and when he took to fly-fishing, he determined never to exaggerate his hauls by more than twenty-five percent. When I have caught forty fish, said he, then I will tell people that I have caught fifty, and so on, but I will not lie any more than that, because it is sinful to lie. But the twenty-five percent plan did not work well at all he never was able to use it. The greatest number of fish he ever caught in one day was three, and you can't add 25% to three, at least not in fish. So he increased his percentage to 33 and a third, but that again was awkward when he had only caught one or two. So, to simplify matters, he made up his mind to just double the quantity. He stuck to this arrangement for a couple of months, and then he grew dissatisfied with it, Nobody believed him when he told them that he only doubled, and he therefore gained no credit that way whatever, while his moderation put him at a disadvantage among the other anglers. When he had really caught three small fish, and he said he had caught six, it used to make him quite jealous to hear a man whom he knew for a fact had only caught one going about telling people he had landed two dozen. So eventually he made one final arrangement with himself Which he has religiously held to ever since, and that was to count each fish that he caught as ten, and to assume ten to begin with. For example, if he did not catch any fish at all, then he said he had caught ten fish. You could never catch less than ten fish by his system. That was the foundation of it. Then, if by any chance he really did catch one fish, he called it twenty, while two fish would count thirty, three forty, and so on. It is a simple and easily worked plan, and there has been some talk lately of its being made use of by the angling fraternity in general. Indeed, the committee of the Thames Anglers Association did recommend its adoption about two years ago, but some of the older members opposed it. They said they would consider the idea if the number were doubled and each fish counted as twenty. If ever you have an evening to spare up the river, "'I should advise you to drop into one of those little village inns "'and take a seat in the tap-room. "'You will be nearly sure to meet one or two old rod-men "'sipping their toddy there, "'and they will tell you enough fishy stories in half an hour "'to give you indigestion for a month.' "'George and I,' I don't know what had become of Harris, "'he had gone out and had a shave early in the afternoon, "'and had then come back and spent full forty minutes "'in pipe-claying his shoes,' we had not seen him since. George and I, therefore, and the dog, left to ourselves, went for a walk to Wallingford on the second evening, and coming home we called in at a little Riverside Inn for a rest and other things. We went into the parlor and sat down. There was an old fellow there smoking a long clay pipe, and we naturally began chatting." He told us that it had been a fine day to and we told him that it had been a fine day yesterday, and then we all told each other that we thought it would be a fine day to-morrow, and George said the crops seemed to be coming up nicely. After that it came out, somehow or another, that we were strangers in the neighborhood, and that we were going away the next morning. Then a pause ensued in the conversation, during which our eyes wandered around the room, they finally rested upon a dusty old glass case fixed very high up above the chimney-piece and containing a trout. It rather fascinated me, that trout. It was such a monstrous fish. In fact, at first glance, I thought it was a cod. "'Ah!' said the old gentleman, following the direction of my gaze. "'Fine fellow that, ain't he?' "'Quite uncommon,' I murmured, and George asked the old man how much he thought it weighed." Eighteen pounds six ounces,' said our friend, rising and taking down his coat. "'Yes,' he continued, "'it was sixteen year ago, come the third of next month, that I landed him. I caught him just below the bridge with a minnow. They told me he were in the river, and I said I'd have him, and so I did. You don't see many fish that size about here now,' I'm thinking. "'Good-night, gentlemen. Good-night.' And out he went and left us alone.' We could not take our eyes off the fish after that. It really was a remarkably fine fish. We were still looking at it when the local carrier, who had just stopped at the inn, came to the door of the room with a pot of beer in his hand, and he also looked at the fish. "'Good-sized trout, that,' said George, turning round to him. "'Ah, you may well say that, sir,' replied the man, and then, after a pull at his beer, he added, "'Maybe you wasn't here, sir, when that fish was caught?' "'No,' we told him. "'We were strangers in the neighborhood.' "'Ah,' said the carrier. "'Then, of course, how should you be? "'It was nearly five years ago that I caught that trout.' "'Oh, was it you who caught it, then?' said I. "'Yes, sir,' replied the genial old fellow. "'I caught him just below the lock.' leastways what was the lock then, one Friday afternoon, and the remarkable thing about it is that I caught him with a fly. I'd gone out pike-fishing, bless you, never thinking of a trout, and when I saw that whopper on the end of my line, blessed if it didn't quite take me aback. Well, you see, he weighed twenty-six pound. Good night, gentlemen, good night. Five minutes afterwards, A third man came in and described how he had caught it early one morning with bleak, and then he left, and a stolid, solemn-looking, middle-aged individual came in and sat down over by the window. None of us spoke for a while, but at length George turned to the newcomer and said, "I "'I beg your pardon, I hope you will forgive the liberty that we, perfect strangers in the neighborhood, are taking, but my friend here and myself would be so much obliged,' if you would tell us how you caught that trout up there.' "'Why, who told you I caught that trout?' was the surprised query. We said that nobody had told us so, but somehow or other we felt instinctively that it was he who had done it.' "'Well, it's a most remarkable thing, most remarkable,' answered the stolid stranger, laughing. "'Because, as a matter of fact, you're quite right. I did catch it.' but fancy your guessing it like that. Dear me, it's really a most remarkable thing. And then he went on and told us how it had taken him half an hour to land it and how it had broken his rod. He said he had weighed it carefully when he reached home, and it had turned the scale at thirty-four pounds. He went in his turn, and when he was gone, the landlord came in to us we told him the various histories we heard about his trout and he was immensely amused and we all laughed very heartily fancy jim bates and joe muggles and mr jones and old billy maunders all telling you that they had caught it <laughs> well that is good said the honest old fellow laughing heartily yes they are the sort to give it me and put up in my potter if they had caught it they are <laughs> "'And then he told us the real history of the fish. "'It seemed that he had caught it himself years ago "'when he was quite a lad, not by any art or skill, "'but by that unaccountable luck that appears to always wait upon a boy "'when he plays the wag from school "'and goes out fishing on a sunny afternoon "'with a bit of string tied onto the end of a tree. "'He said that bringing home that trout had saved him from a whacking,' and that even his schoolmaster had said it was worth the rule of three in practice put together. He was called out of the room at this point, and George and I again turned our gaze upon the fish. It really was a most astonishing trout. The more we looked at it, the more we marveled at it. It excited George so much that he climbed up on the back of a chair to get a better view of it, and then the chair slipped, and George clutched wildly at the trout-case to save himself, and down it came with a crash, George and the chair on top of it. "'You haven't injured the fish, have you?' I cried in alarm, rushing up. "'I hope not,' said George, rising cautiously and looking about. But he had. The trout lay shattered into a thousand fragments. I say a thousand, but they may have been only nine hundred. I did not count them.' We thought it strange and unaccountable that a stuffed trout should break up into little pieces like that, and so it would have been strange and unaccountable if it had been a stuffed trout, but it was not. That trout was plaster of Paris."